Talkback Matters from the Salvos. Author and veterinary physician Elisa Metis wrote recently, When I lost my 20-year-old son to a self-inflicted gunshot wound, I plunged into a vacuum devoid of any belief system that would answer what would be the most important question of my life. Where is my son? Where did he go to? So she started researching the afterlife. I think it's fair to say that the afterlife is on most, if not all, people's minds when it comes down to their last breath. So our guests this week are Dr Barnett, leading New Testament scholar, and Michael Turner, the senior curator of the Nicholson Museum at the University of New South Wales. First up, Michael shed some interesting insights into what the ancient Egyptians and Greeks believed about the afterlife and their burial customs. Well, I mean, the, the whole concept of the whole concept of placing objects in a, a, a tomb, I mean, if you think of the Egyptian uh, example, is quite specifically for use in the afterlife. Uh, I mean, in the Egyptian example, uh, they even had a little figures uh, buried with them, a little figures called shaptis. Um, and these quite specifically were uh, people who would work for you in the afterlife. So you were taking your, your, your servants or, or slaves along with you. Do they think those figures came to life, or how did that...? Well, exactly, I mean, well, in exactly the same way that the, the mummy itself would come alive. Uh, I mean, once you got through the, the, the judgment process, once you were uh, judged to be of pure character, um, then there was the, the possibility that your body would reconstitute itself, would come back together... Uh, much as the uh, in the whole regeneration myth of Osiris, uh, and that in the afterlife um, uh, you'd gone protected, amulets everywhere, protecting all the various parts of your body, um, uh, enabling you to 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 be as it were put back together again in the afterlife. Similarly, with the little figures that came with you, the suggestion was that these little uh, clay figures, uh, in turn, uh, would come alive again and would uh, yeah look after you. But of course, the more important you were, uh, the more of the little figures you took with you. You know, a pharaoh very often would be buried with 365, one for each day of the year. I read how the pharaohs actually got into having an afterlife yeah. simply because of their role in life. Yes, I mean, there was never the supposition that they'd actually come alive again. Um, uh, it was always very much that they, you know, that the, that the life that you would come alive again in would be in the afterlife. Uh, then, of course, that leads into the whole thing of many other societies who um, who believe in, in, in sort of, you know, reincarnation, as it were, you know, going through a process of uh, of slowly uh, enabling your, you, you to actually come alive in the real world again. You know, I mean, to be mummified was, was a very expensive thing to do. It was a, a process that took time and people had to be paid to do it. So the lowest classes uh, would not be able to afford to do that. And as with... Many societies throughout history, uh, we tend to see the, the higher class, the higher status burials that have survived, you know, even through the Christian example of the, you know, mass graves of paupers' graves, of uh, burial pits and so on, where the, the lower stratums of society would purely be anonymously disposed of. Right. And the higher up the social chain you were, the, the more uh, visible was your... Uh, both your burial and your memorial and your, your remains. So it's not really any different to today in so much as the exposure, really, is it? No. It's interesting today, though, isn't it, that we have no... This concept of, of taking things to the, to the afterlife with you <laughs> has gone. It's a bit sad, really. Walk like an Egyptian 
can you uh, tell us the range of things that they would uh, typically take? It's, it's a very interesting question, actually, because it depends. Uh, it changes all the time. Uh, it's very much, uh, if one use the beastly word, a thing of fashion and uh, custom and usage at the time. Um, an example that I know a lot about, which is the uh, the ancient Greeks and their burial practice. If you go to museums today of antiquities, you'll see them full of, of, of black and red pots with figures of people on them uh, and mythological subjects and doing all sorts of things. Uh, and it's not very often realised that those pots, uh, the reason they've survived is that, that they've survived from graves. And religious belief at the time was very much tied up with uh, a sort of a proto-Christian belief uh, in the god Dionysus. And wine drinking uh, was all important. So you would be buried with a wine crater. You would be buried with a cup to drink wine from in the afterlife. You would be buried with a bowl to eat your food on. And you'd be buried with a lamp because the the road, the path to the underworld was dark and dangerous and you needed a, a, a torch literally, to help you get there. So they're the four objects that were, were traditionally buried. But, I mean, this only really happened over a period of a couple of hundred years, which in the, the history of mankind is a, is, is a, you know, a moment in time. Yes. Um, and yet so much has survived from that time uh, that rather sort of skews our whole uh, interpretation of it, not least the same with Egyptian as well. Um, you know, an awful lot of survive, has survived from ancient Egypt but things changed diametrically, uh, you know, in, in a later period. Bodies weren't mummified anymore. Shabtis weren't put in graves. Different things were done. In the idea with that the Greeks had, I read about how boats came into it quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an absolute classic because, you know, the, the other thing is, where is the afterlife? Uh, is it down under the ground? Uh, is it up in the sky? Is it across the ocean? So... Indeed, uh, boats, dolphins to carry you across the ocean, all sorts of, uh, of myths. You know, you think of the, the wonderful uh, early examples from the, the steppes of Russia, even into early Anglo-Saxon belief, the burying of people or burning of bodies uh, with boats. Uh, was, was, was very much, again, another fashion at the time, another way of doing it, another way basically of of transporting a body to the glorious afterlife. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, the thing that always does fascinate me is how and why we have stopped putting things uh, in graves with bodies. You know, some people do put things in, but it's a very sort of, you know, it's not an accepted thing to do. And it's interesting, for example, I mean, flowers, you know, flowers are, are, are thrown into graves. Quite, what, what's the motif with flowers? And interestingly as well, somebody I've done a lot of work on is, is uh, that great iconoclast, Sigmund Freud. And Freud, for example, was cremated. Uh, and of all unlikely things, his ashes were placed in one of those Greek pots that I was talking about. Uh, and are now on public display in a, a crematorium in uh, in Golders Green in London. Right. But again, that whole belief structure of quite how and how and what we do and, and, and how we dispose of our remains is, is, is a fascinating one. Well, the Egyptians, was it? They didn't want to be cremated because, of course, that goes against, you know, their coming back. Well, the idea of putting the body back together again, exactly. But also, I mean... The, the, it's a question of needs must as well. I mean, to cremate a body takes a lot of wood. And the one thing they didn't have in Egypt was wood. And so the obvious thing is you bury a body in the sand. And if you place a body in the sand in Egypt, it basically desiccates. Um, and that's how mummification originated, the, the realisation of the process of drying out a body. And uh, uh, it survives miraculously. It doesn't 
decompose uh, as a body buried in a, uh, a more humid climate would. The, the whole thing of cremation as opposed to burial, uh, you know, there are times that it becomes a question of fashion, but very often it's more a question of the availability of wood and also it's, it's, to cremate a body is a very expensive thing to do um, in comparison to simply digging a hole in the ground and basically chucking the body in. Yeah, right. And then the fashion of mummifying and putting things in the tomb for them for the afterlife was beginning to change. Well, Christianity came along, I guess, with the big thing. It had different uh, beliefs. Uh, so again, you know, fashion, usage, uh, different, different belief systems in place, a different uh, belief in, in, in how and what the afterlife was going to be and what you needed there. What were your thoughts on who Jesus said he was, is, you know? On Jesus? Yeah, just your thoughts on that era. I, you know, I, that's not an area that I really, um, uh, you know, I mean, my own personal belief is that uh, um, it's a continuation of um, belief practices that have been in place for thousands of years beforehand. And one of the, I guess, the glorious things about Christianity is its, it's, it's use of, of ancient myths, uh, uh, the sublimation of them into its own story. Uh, I mean, the stories of uh, sons of God being torn to pieces or dying horrific deaths and coming alive after three days um, uh, exist long before the Jesus myth. Listen, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time. Okay, Chris. Michael Turner, Senior Curator of the Nicholson Museum, New South Wales. Dr Paul Barnett is also on the phone with a response to Michael's comments. Dr Barnett is a leading New Testament scholar, but he wasn't raised in a Christian home. He doesn't have that history or influence, and he shares what he discovered. No, no, I wasn't, no. No. I, uh, I became interested in Christianity as a young adult in my 20s. I didn't have the benefit or maybe the disadvantages of having been raised as a Christian and maybe having had some bad experiences along the way. I hadn't I had no experience at all. So um so I came at it came at it quite in a quite a fresh way really. But um I mean I thought I thought what he said was uh fascinating. He's obviously a significant authority on the subject. Yeah. But uh, when you really think about it, I I think um Life and death are so much existentially part of our existence, and uh, inevitably um, ideas arise about what happens when a person dies. Even even in a modern secular society, you go to a funeral, not not a Christian funeral, and people still speak about uh, the person continuing to be with us, or even looking down on us, or something like that. So the the idea of the nature of the afterlife has obviously been of great interest to people. And the fact that in various cultures around the world they developed patterns of attitude for which there's a certain commonality or similarity ought not to be surprised at. So then what was it that made you start to believe? What was the turning point then for you way back well, it wasn't the resurrection. It, if, if you want my own personal story, um, I guess my own personal story was I couldn't see any meaning to life, quite frankly. Um, I was at a stage in my early 20s when the, I and the, my group of friends were just sort of drifting along, going nowhere, and I couldn't see the point of it all. 
And so I began to ask questions about what, what was the purpose of life, what was the meaning of life. I then began reading the Bible, underwent a conversion experience, and in a sense only then began to ask my Christian friends, well, was it really true? Because I'm not someone who... I'm very wary of religious experiences. I, you know, I think they, they don't... Um, they can easily be unhelpful and misleading, and just if they're psychologically based, they can be the object of manipulation and stuff like that. And so I really began to want to be sure that what I committed myself to was, was true. And so I began really going into the quest, the truth question, and that remains a very important interest. Uh, still many, many years later. Briefly, how did you go into that? What specifically did you do? Well, um, by that time I had undergone theological training, four years, and then joined, joined the faculty of a theological college as a junior lecturer. My background had been in the building industry, and I had little little knowledge of um, what we might call history and uh, art-type uh, questions, philosophical-type questions. So my principal... My head, for whom I worked, that I needed to do some studies in university, so I, I did ancient history at the University of Sydney. And uh, within probably a year of doing that, a penny dropped that told me that the sources for early Christianity were better than, than any of the sources, the historical sources for the people I was studying, whether it was... Nero, Caesar, or Alexander the Great, you name it. Uh, the evidence for Jesus is, is closer to him and better and more numerous and more diverse than the evidence for just about anybody that I could think of in the ancient world. And so the penny dropped, and it just astonished me that I was doing ancient history, which I did for three or four years at the University of Sydney, and... Um, the, the the one name that never got mentioned ever until I had some courses from Professor Judge in third or fourth year, uh, the one name that was never mentioned was Jesus. And his Jesus has had bigger impact on the world than Alexander the Great or anyone else, yeah. and, yet, and yet you don't talk about him. Interestingly, so he he got sort of airbrushed out of the out of all discussion even back then, uh, back in the sixties. Uh, so, therefore, the study of ancient history has become, um, you know, become a particular interest. And in that relationship, I did I did some postgraduate study in political figures in Palestine in the first century, uh, people like Judas the Galilean and Judas and Simon Bargioras. I mean, there's a whole array of these people in the first century who are documented by Josephus and other sources. And they were big time in their day. They had huge followings. Um, and yet, uh, when they die, when they get killed, um, if they nearly all were killed, um, that's really the end of their movement. Their movement finishes with the death of the founder. Yeah. Uh, so it's absolutely striking that with Jesus, who has a following when he is, when he is killed, in a sense, uh, his movement takes off. Why does it take off? It takes off because of the resurrection. There's no other, no other explanation. You can't explain the rise of Christianity simply by the, the depth of Jesus' teaching or 
the goodness of his life. I mean, true as those things are, those things of themselves would not have launched this great movement, which within a few years had begun to uh, capture the Greek world, Greek and Roman world. Yes, I remember reading Tacitus, uh, who was born in 59 AD, I think, because he actually mentioned about the uh, Christianity breaking afresh. Yes, Tacitus says that uh, it broke out afresh um, and spread, uses the language of a disease, spread, spread from Judea to Rome, and so that by within 30 years of the crucifixion of Jesus, the half of the fire of Rome, um, Nero was able to execute an immense multitude, a vast multitude of people. Yeah. So within 30 years of Jesus and as far away from Jerusalem as Rome was, you have a very very large cohort of people who are now followers of, uh, of, of Jesus the Messiah. And I don't think um, I don't think you can attribute that to the impact of the crucifixion. I think you have to you have to explain that by the conviction that the first uh, proponents of this movement were absolutely insisting on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. New Testament scholar Dr. Paul Barnett, he mentioned afterwards a very good book that we might like to read if we're interested in the afterlife. It's by Eddie and Boyd and it's called The Jesus Legend. This is Light and Life. To contact us, go to salvos.org.au slash radio.